Welcome to Faith in Letters, a podcast at the intersection of Christianity, the writing life, and the wide world of books. I'm your host, Ben Bishop. My guest this week was Adam Lewis Green, the creator of Bibliotheca, which was a project to create a reader's Bible, what's known as a reader's Bible, a Bible with no chapter or verse notation, uh, but certainly not only that, as he explains to me. Um, And this was back in 2014. He ultimately ended up spending years creating this Bible, uh, which ultimately ended up being a multi-volume, gorgeous, heirloom-quality physical object, and also sort of philosophically uh, a project that he was at least seeking to use to help people return to more ancient forms, allowing readers to have an experience of the biblical text that's much closer to what the ancients would have had when they read the scrolls and codices on which the earliest incarnations of the Hebrew Bible and the Christian New Testament were originally written and copied. He funded this project, Bibliotheca, through a Kickstarter campaign that ended up being just an unbelievable smash success. And we talk about that. We talk about kind of the first 24 hours of the campaign. Uh, And from there, after we talk a little bit about the campaign, we just let ourselves off the chain and go deep. We go deep into the weeds on everything from numerous different decisions he had to make about uh, how to design the Bible, including perhaps most fascinatingly for me, the just the process of creating the font, hand-designed font that he used for this Bible, to the wealth of knowledge that he has about historical Bible design generally, uh, and just the the kind of the logic behind his desire to use uh, a pre-war translation of the Bible. He ultimately used the ASV, the American Standard Version, uh, and updated that version as well. So a ton of labor went into the editing of the book and really just absolutely every element of creating this Bible. Adam was clearly, is clearly super bright, erudite, learned guy with a ton of knowledge about biblical scholarship as well as, uh, again, Bible design, which was something I really knew nothing about. I, I just loved this conversation. It was very educational for me. Uh, no matter who you are, I can almost guarantee that you are about to learn something new about the Bible you've been reading for years. Adam Green, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Ben. Glad to be here. Adam, you're the the designer and creator of Bibliotheca, the Bibliotheca Project, which was well known for being, I think probably still to this day, if not the single highest funded book-related Kickstarter project in Kickstarter's history, at least certainly among among the top two or three, uh, just a huge smash success. It was a redesign of the Bible uh, into what's sometimes referred to as a reader's Bible, a Bible without chapter and verse notation. Before we talk about any number of aspects of that project. I actually want to just go back a little earlier and ask about your earliest memories of a physical Bible. Not an abstraction, not the idea of the Bible as a collection of stories or texts or teachings, but an actual object. What, what are the, what's the Bible or Bibles that you remember inter- interacting with as a child? Let me see. I, I'm going to have to dig a little bit for that because I Obviously, I grew up with the Bible, so I was interacting with them since before I can remember. I remember my dad reading from them. My dad was an, was an associate pastor at a church when I was very young. Um, and sometimes we would do sometimes we would do home church and he would read from it. Um, but it was, you know, it was your typical reference Bible bonded leather type of thing. Um, but I don't remember anything specific about it. I do remember, a couple of Bibles later on in my life, I think it was probably like mid-high school, sophomore, junior year. One, I was gifted. I was given a parallel Bible, uh, I, and I think it was, I want to say it was maybe the New King James, the New American Standard, and the NIV, 
and something I don't remember what, what else it was. I still I think I have it somewhere. Um, but it was very you know it was it was you know it's four different translations bound into one volume. So it was just insanely thick. It was a brick, and um, and the materials were uh, you know it's I don't think it's fair to say cheap, but you know the paper was just extremely thin um and the type was extremely small but the other one that i remember was a new american standard bible i thought that was good because i i had heard it was the most literal and i wanted for whatever reason the most literal um i could get my hands on at the time i had a new testament and it was just the new testament it was a red leather binding not a nice one like a cheap bonded leather and but the paper was really nice and it was thick and um it it was it was laid out like a typical reference bible but i but i distinctly remember how nice the paper was it had a slight yellow cream tint to it and uh it had some texture to it and it was it was uh, opaque and i remember i specifically remember that well part of why part of why i ask is because um in doing my research for this interview, I heard you tell a, a really powerful story about kind of incorporating your experience of a, a, a lovely edition of Thoreau's Walden with these these woodcut um, engraving print, you know, plates in the middle and this lovely binding into kind of weaving that experience into an explanation of your philosophy of book design or design generally and, and you talked essentially about how anytime that a designer designs an object they add to the meaning of that object and to some extent you know in a further sense with a book which obviously contain is a physical object but that also evinces and contains and sort of makes physical a set of ideas or language which is not a physical thing it inevitably adds to kind of the the experience of those ideas and i'm i'm kind of wondering how consciously or subconsciously you're aware of the way in which those early formative experiences which undoubtedly went on for years it sounds like if you were raised within a, a home that where you were around the bible all the time how those early experiences with the bible shaped your experience of the stories inside the bible you talk about you acknowledge and are obviously well aware of the fact that the the biblical stories almost certainly you know came down certainly came down from oral tradition um and we can think in a church context that's a good example of how a kid will sometimes be told bible stories or be shown bible stories uh, in a video or if you're like me as a kid on on what's called a felt board Yep, but obviously you're you're voice. often turned loose at some point to read the Bible on your own. You may have a picture Bible. I actually just bought a couple picture Bibles for my son. His birthday is coming up, his third birthday, um, and I'm just kind of navigating how do I how do I introduce him to a physical Bible for the first time? But how, do you, do you have a sense of how interacting and, and and specifically interacting with what you often refer to as and we would all recognize as kind of that standard kind of encyclopedic, very dense. A text dense, tiny type, thin page kind of Bible affected the way that you come to the actual literature inside or kind of shaped how you received that literature? I don't think that the, that that particular format um, is what uh, is what spurred the idea for Bibliotheca. I don't I, in a way, I think, I never thought twice about that because I grew up in a biblicist or Bible centric kind of environment. And that was just what the Bible was. And actually there weren't that many other books that we, you know, um, considered. Um, I mean, it was just like, it was a wholly different thing. It was an, it was an entirely different ball game with the Bible. The Bible wasn't even really like any other book at all. It wasn't, um, I couldn't even say it wasn't like other literature because it wasn't even l literature almost. It was this kind of direct line to the authoritative truth and this this sort of human dimension, the literary dimension was was tertiary at best. 
um, you know, there it, it was more important for other for other things for for mining truth uh, or dogma maybe would be a better term to use than truth. Um, and so, yeah, I just viewed it. I just didn't think twice about it. And I think it wasn't until much later on in my life, like my early 20s, that I started to wrestle a little bit more with the nature of what the biblical corpus was and um, its origins and what it meant to me in light of those realizations. I was learning about the origins of the Bible and the development of the Bible. And a lot of it is guesswork, you know. Um, it did, most of it probably come down to us an oral tradition, not all of it, um, but then how how it actually came together and was redacted from there and, and how many stages is still, um, we have some pretty well laid out arguments, but it's still very much a mystery. And so um, I just, I, I had a lot of questions about its value. And then a lot of things were happening in my life personally, spiritually, um, that caused me to wrestle with my, with my faith. And that was, that was when I was confronted, especially with the question, what value has the Bible to me? And, and I wanted to take that question seriously because I, uh, was old enough, you know, in my early twenties, I was old enough to, to have seen many of my friends leave their faith and do it with a kind of complete resolution. Like they didn't want to look back. They were just going to throw everything out, all of their faith, the Bible, church, everything. And I wanted to kind of carefully turn over those stones before I was ready to say what it what they meant to me either way. I was confronted with that question. I, I thought, you know, if the Bible is what I understood it to be as a child and as a very young man, if that's all it is, then I'm not sure I'm interested in it anymore. So I was curious and I started reaching a little bit further than my immediate circles in terms of uh, biblical interpretation and theology, and was exposed, I think, first to a book by N.T. Wright called Scripture and the Authority of God. And it was the first book to really make it an open discussion, to make it a, to actually address the question as though it were a question to be asked, which is what is the authority of Scripture? What does that mean? How do we define that? What are the parameters of that? Um, what are we even talking about when we talk about authority? What are we even talking about when we talk about scripture? And how is it an extension of the authority of God? And I just remember it being so refreshing for somebody to, it felt like N.T. Wright was kind of coming down to my level and giving me the opportunity to really have that question. And he was helping me deal with it, helping me grasp toward the answers that I needed. But I, I had never, you know, in my upbringing as a as in a fundamentalist community, that was just never really a question you asked. You know, it was just, it was a matter of fact. Um, the Bible is authoritative. It's inerrant. It's the word of God. But I was asking those questions. Well, what does that mean? What is the word of God? And does the Bible provide a clear definition of that? You know, where are we, what are we basing on these terms? What are we talking about? What does inerrant mean? Do we're talking about every historical iota being factually true or, or or is there no allegory or what what do we mean i mean and it was a very literalist environment that i was in a lot of people go through that process of deconstruction possible partial reconstruction total reconstruction you know retaining their faith leaving the faith that is not terribly uncommon within the realm of people who have grown up in and kind of you know been cradle christians not everyone who grows up in that context and moves either toward a deeper examination of their faith or away from the faith of their parents goes on to create a Bible and spend years doing that, though. So let's fast forward, having laid some really excellent groundwork. And let me just ask the, the basic question that will then set us off to the races in terms of talking about this project. Why did you ultimately decide to create a Bible without 
chapters and verses. What was the what was the germinating seed of the Bibliotheca project? So, <clears throat> creating a Bible without chapters and verses, that's like the, that's the uh, that's the marketing angle, right? That's the way that I would talk about it if I was trying to get someone's attention, right? So it's marketing. But for me, it was more about creating a Bible that was more true to the nature of the contents of the Bible. You know, so it's almost like a, it's not just a Bible without chapter and verse numbers. It's a Bible that is, a, is to me, a better manifestation. And I guess, I mean, better, whatever, I don't know. To, I said to me, in my opinion, it was a better manifestation of what's actually there. It closely mimics the earliest formats of this literature in written form. Whereas a reference Bible, a modern reference Bible, uh, strewn about with chapters and, and verse numbers and all kinds of apparatus, doesn't reflect at all what the ancients um, experienced. So, you know, the ancients the ancients had different experiences. A lot of times the, the scriptures would be read out loud in a holy place like a synagogue or a church or someone's home um, as they're they're gathering. But those physical formats were were very simple and they and they weren't typically divided into numbered chapters or sections until much, much later. And I think one of the things that I like to remind people of is that the majority of our understanding or our interpretation of the Bible comes from folks who interacted with it uh, entirely without the use of chapters and verse numbers. Origen, St. Augustine, did not use chapter and verse numbers. They just knew the text. Uh, and then, of course, we're talking about the New Testament authors as well. You know, they were using the Hebrew scriptures, but they they just knew the text and they did not even conceive of chapter or verse numbers. They didn't exist. And so our understanding of scripture, the, the primary interpretations that we carry with us comes down from the this um, simpler, more pure physical format that presents the text in literary units. And so my goal was basically just to try to to try to manifest that. And it's and so I've said many times what I'm doing is I'm not trying to do something new. What I'm doing is I'm trying to go back to revert to ancient formats of the text. And just just to give people that opportunity because why shouldn't we have that opportunity? You know, why why should we all just be reading numbered numbered Bibles that are, that include all kinds of, especially, especially notes. Um, I think notes obviously provide a huge benefit, but they also kind of zip things up really simply where sometimes they might not be so simple because you're, you're trying to fit these little interpretive notes in the margins to, to tell the reader what's going on. Um, but if you just leave the margins blank and what the main text says is just utterly confusing, then you've left the reader with a question. And for me, that's that's also not a bad thing. I want to come at it from a slightly different angle. That's a that's an eloquent response, and I, and I love that. But I think even just hearing you give that response to the question of why you created the Bible brings up or sort of clarifies, reifies for me, the extent to which you actually... Just in the in the relatively small amount of research I did, and just talking to you here for the first five ten minutes, are, are clear. You're actually kind of a not an enigma, Adam, but you are you encapsulate simultaneously these two uh, tendencies or predispositions that don't always go together. Which are you're very you're clearly a, a very literate and literary person with who with a with a huge capacity for abstraction and a huge intellect but you also have and we haven't really talked about this too much but if people look at the book and look into kind of what you have available on the Bibliotheca website I mean this is a this is a beautiful physical object and you handled all of the design so you have a lot of design skills um, and even some manual skills that maybe we'll talk about but you've got kind of that designer working with your hands, work creating physical, you know, artistic objects kind of a bent as well. So in terms of just, yeah, the, the synaptic 
personal leap that you made from the, the, the fundamentalist, as you've described it, childhood and the Bibles there to deciding that you were going to create this Bible that eliminated distractions and reverted to older forms. I'm curious, I think I'm, what I'm curious about is the earliest, the earliest uh, kind of er moment of, of dreaming up this Bible, because to, to, um, explain a little further, you, you talk in a few of the interviews you give about how the, the really beautiful and uh, well-produced Kickstarter video that you made was what you attribute a lot of, of the success of, the, of that particular product launch to and how you were able to get so many backers. But if you watch that video, you had clearly been not only thinking about doing this project for possibly years before you even made that project, um, which is not always the case for Kickstarter. Sometimes people are like, I have this idea and I'll only act on it if I get, you know, X amount of money to sort of then sort of fund my development of it. But you had also, in addition to thinking about it, I mean, you are, you have prototypes that you're holding up in that video. You have stuff that you have, you have books with spines. I don't know if there's anything in, in them at that point, but you're like putting gold, gold foil on them. So you were clearly really, really invested in this project on some kind of personal emotional level and I actually just read somewhere yesterday I was reading a little bit about the Chronicles of Narnia for some reason and C.S. Lewis um, apparently had the image of Tumnus and the Fawn just kind of in his head for since he maybe 30 or 40 years since he was uh, I think a teenager until he actually sat down and said to himself let's see if we can make a story out of this so do you do you, can you excavate at all any further? What was, where where did this begin in terms of making that movement from the you know reading N.T. Wright and beginning to kind of cast around to try to to clarify what your own beliefs were about the Bible to then a light bulb going off or just getting an image. I don't know if you were holding a Bible or a beautiful edition of Walden in your hands when you had the thought. You know what? I I think I'm going to make my own Bible. It was it was a combination of things, obviously, and I don't I don't remember the the specific moment um, when I when I came up with the idea, or I would say the idea came to came to me, struck me, and I would I think um, I do remember though the first time I told people that I didn't know very well about the idea. I had just uh, moved to Santa Cruz and um, I had just met a group of people. This, you know, they, I, I, met a, I met a guy at, at church and he invited me to go to a barbecue. This guy is now one of my, my best friends. He invited me to go to a barbecue and I was hanging out with him and his friends for the first time. They were just trying to get to know me and what I did. And I was telling them that I, I'm a book designer and graphic designer, illustrator. And they just were kind of asking what kind of jobs I did. And, and then somehow that led to me saying, what I'd really love to do is, is this, I'd love to create a Bible that is separated into volumes. So you can, you can use nicer paper and it doesn't have any chapters or verse numbers. And I don't know, maybe it's, maybe it's five volumes, maybe it's 10 volumes. I don't really know, but I just remember their reaction to that. They were so excited about it. They were like, dude, that's a great idea. <laughs> I was like, really? You think that like, it's just, Honestly, it's just the way that I want to read the Bible. That I mean, that was really it. That was my motivation was I was frustrated that it was virtually impossible to find a Bible that would allow me to experience it more purely as as literature. I'm also thinking more specifically, it it was my experience with nicer books. Not always really nice books. I mean, that Walden book that I mentioned, it's been a while since since I've talked about that book. But I'm glad you brought it up because that that was a very influential book for me. I just remember sensing the attention to every single step of the process and the making of that book that was still evident to me at that time, you know, almost 80 years later. And um, just the, the materials chosen, the quality of the printing, the clarity of the printing, the beauty of the woodcuts that were the woodcuts themselves were actually made at Walden Pond, you know, for them to just for them to to have that kind of um, commitment to bringing an experience to the reader was so inspiring to me. I just hadn't really encountered that before or taken the time to know it. But I was more 
um, I was paying attention because I had stumbled into book design out of college. You know, I, I landed a job, my first job as a designer out of college, having graduated with a graphic design uh, major, was was designing books. So I started naturally. I started reading reading up on typography and book design and book production, binding materials. I started looking at samples and things like that, which led me to start paying more attention to what's what was going on in, in books. And I think it was a, an accumulation of those experiences where I was looking more closely at books. One in particular that was actually a Bible was the Marderstieg New Testament, uh, or the Verona New Testament, as it's sometimes called, which is this really beautiful um, letterpress printed New Testament. It was done in the 50s um, by Hans Modersteg. And it's it's still it's still one of my greatest treasures. Uh, I found one for for 15 bucks at uh, Moe's in Berkeley one day. Um, and they're worth a lot more than that. <laughs> um, but it was just kind of just sitting there on the shelf for 15 bucks. And so I I grabbed it and and um, but yeah, it was a lot of those types of experiences with specific books that accumulated into, you know, me being inspired to create something where there was no detail left unconsidered. I wanted to create something that could, that would stand up to the test of time that somebody 70, 80 years from now can, will pick up and say, wow, this, somebody put a lot of thought into this. Yeah. And I, w- I want to move into talking about that actual object now. People will find the story of your actual Kickstarter launch very romantic, and we don't have to cover the blow by blow, but there's something about a just a huge viral success that can be really sweet. And the the kind of overarching sketches, I, th- I can't remember exactly how much money you initially set as your goal. For people who don't know, Kickstarter is a platform whereby people can fund a project and you only get the money as the person who's who's running the campaign and trying to raise this money if you actually meet your goal. So you set your goal at like, was it like $37,000, something like that? That was it. And you ultimately raised uh, well over a million dollars. So a smash, you know, grand slam out of the park success. Um, I, I think maybe one of the, just the thing I'd like to ask you about is just take, kind of take us through the first 24 hours. It funded, it ended up funding that initial portion within 24 hours, which I, I can't, I can't remember how you, long you normally have. It's 30 or 40 days. So it immediately funded take us through there must have been some nerves there must have been some elation like do do you remember that day it's got to be a big day in your life i remember that day absolutely um i remember i think we launched it on a friday afternoon we were going for thirty-seven thousand dollars, and leading up to the campaign in itself was very stressful because i was very skeptical of our ability to reach thirty-seven thousand dollars. i thought that was just an enormous amount to um to reach for. And that was basically just to give, provide some context. That was basically to fund the manufacture of about 500 of these sets. And that was at cost. You know, basically I had not built in any profit. There was a little margin of error that I put in there to sort of protect me, um, from going into deep debt. But, um, really I was just asking people, for money so that I could have the thing manufactured and I would, I would make it design it and manage the project for free essentially. <laughs> so that was, that was how desperate I was to have this thing made. And $37,000 was kind of the number that we came up with like that. That's the lowest possible number that we can reasonably do this well. And so, yeah, we launched and, and then there was just a, an overwhelming amount of support from people that I knew, uh, family and friends just immediately backed it and shared it. And yeah, the very next day we had the $37,000 and it, and it slowed down a little bit after that. I think we, you know, $37,000 in a day. And then every day after that was kind of, it, it started, um, started at maybe $10,000 a day. And then it would, it went up a little bit until it got to maybe $20,000 a day. Um, and this was all just happening organically. I mean, we, we didn't, um, we weren't running ads on YouTube. Like you see a lot of Kickstarters doing now. Um, 
we weren't running Facebook ads. We we weren't reaching out to publications. People were sharing it and blog bloggers were picking it up. Publications were picking it up. The Wall Street Journal did a little piece about it and a few other publications, Christianity Today. And then finally, the, the big what the big turning point where when we were at, I believe, about four hundred thousand dollars in funding. There were six days left in the campaign, and I had been going back and forth with The Verge with a, an interview, with interview questions uh, via email, and they published with six days left in the campaign that interview, and that was in the last six days when we made $1 million in those six days alone. And it was, um, yeah, it was unbelievable. I mean, that first day was, was yeah, I was... I, I couldn't sleep the first night because I was I was seeing how fast the numbers were going up. But then you can imagine waking up and seeing the numbers go. I don't I don't remember how much it was the first day that the Verge article was was posted, but it you know it went up like two hundred thousand dollars in a day. And I just thought, oh okay, this is a. Uh... And my wife was was freaking out. She was telling me to shut it down. She did not want me to. Uh, allow it to get that big because she was just afraid of what it meant for me and for, for the well, let's project talk about that because yeah. i want to know how the, there must have inevitably been on possibly on numerous levels a, an increased sense of pressure from getting that much a response that much money how, so you you have the smash success raise way 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 exponentially more money than you'd set out to raise where did you where did you start the day that the campaign ended, where did you where did you start, and how did you feel about kind of what you were facing at that point? It was during the campaign that I realized, okay, this is going to be really different than what I thought it was going to be. Um, I thought it was going to be a really small, intimate um, kind of tribe of people that were going to receive this set and it was going to be a kind of a one-off thing. And, and that would be it, you know, it'd be a very obscure thing that I would accomplish on the weekends, you know, um, until it was done. And then as soon as I realized it was, it was something bigger, overwhelmed is the word. I was, I was completely overwhelmed. I was a little bit afraid of the pressure. Yeah, I, I wasn't, I, I hadn't set out wanting that kind of attention on what I was doing. You know, I didn't necessarily, or that kind of pressure. It, and I think I've used this, I've used this um, metaphor before to describe it. I think I tell people, if you were to imagine you're trying to fund an elementary school play to be put on in the gymnasium and you get, you get enough funding to, to make a, a Hollywood feature film, you know? And so are, are you still going to put on an elementary school play or are you going to go make the Hollywood feature film? If I had, if I, I'll put it this way, if I had gone ahead with the school play, my profit margin would have been enormous. Um, you know, like I would have, I would have been able to pocket so much of that money um, just because of economies of scale and just the, how much cheaper the, the cost per unit would have been. And so my, the most difficult thing for me to do was to figure out how to maximize the resources we'd been given to as much as possible, fulfill the original vision, which was to create best possible reading experience for the reader as close to ask at cost as was safe for me without going into death debt. And that's exactly what we did. I mean, it, so it took a lot of time. We, we got to choose nicer materials. We got to choose different things that weren't even on the table to begin with when we launched the campaign, like hiring an editorial team of, uh, I think we had eight or sometimes 10 different copy editors working on the text all managed by a managing editor. And then we had um, Devin O'Donnell, who was our research editor, and then an array of other contractors that we were able to bring on to to really make the text um, clean and something special and unique that you couldn't find anywhere else. It was it was 
very overwhelming. And in fact, I would say it probably took me like six months to just get my bearings to reorient to the size of the project. Um, I just had a lot of conversations in those first few months with different people seeking advice. A lot of those conversations were dead ends. A lot of them were helpful. Um, but I was just very confused. I just didn't, I didn't even know what to do or what my first steps should be. I just wanted to be responsible with what I, with what I, this amazing opportunity that I had been given. I didn't want to blow it. And of course, immediately, immediately there was criticism and there were angry people um, because we weren't able to deliver by Christmas of that year, which was the original plan, um, which in hindsight was totally stupid of me to even think that that was possible. But, um, but I did, I did honestly think it was possible, but I did also announce before the end of the campaign when everything had totally blown up, I think a couple of days before the campaign, I sent out an update to all the people who had backed the project and said, guys, I don't really know what to say other than <laughs> thank you all so much. But also, this has clearly become something bigger than what I imagined it would be. And I honestly don't know how long it's going to take me to finish. <laughs> so, that, I mean, you've talked about how you, you, you've alluded to or touched on having some book design experience. I imagine there's still on both the skill acquisition in terms of book design and, and then the knowledge about just kind of biblical research both in terms of design and then the actual text could could have been endless. You could have you could have you know spent ten lifetimes kind of beefing up to do a project like this, and you didn't have ten lifetimes. So you had a lot of uh, things to get up to speed on, especially stuff you weren't going to outsource, stuff that you were committed to doing yourself or just needed to do yourself. I think to to just hone in on one thing that is most fascinating to me as a kind of an outsider who doesn't understand typeface i want to i want to hear maybe a little bit about the process of designing the the typeface or the the font that you used in this bible uh my understanding was that it, it was like a one-off thing you designed just for this project used just for this project seems like there was a, a manual component of actually drawing the letters can you can you talk a little bit about the process of designing the font that you used in the bible yeah absolutely and i think um also to to kind of um, color that in a little bit. I think the whole project for me, it was, it was an idea, like I said earlier, it was an idea long before, uh, I launched it. And when I had the idea, I knew then that I needed to have more experience before I actually undertook it. So it was a few years before I felt like I was even capable of doing it and doing it well. Um, I wanted I wanted to be a better designer before I did it. And so a, a big part of that was type design for whatever reason. I mean, I know the reason. Um, I wanted to design a unique typeface for it just because there's a long tradition, not just in Judaism, but especially in Judaism, um, of using um, sort of consecrated uh scripts or hand styles for holy text. And I, I just love that idea, how you would only find this style of script in the scriptures. And so I wanted to kind of duplicate that experience um, so that when you when you read Bibliotheca, you're you're seeing, you know, the the text presented in a way that suggests it's it's set apartedness, it's holiness. In the process of designing my own typeface for Bibliotheca was basically, I'm not a type designer. I've never designed a typeface before. So that was a huge part of the development of Bibliotheca. The years leading up to it was me actually learning how to create letters with a broad nibbed pen, which is, um, you know, our, our Roman Roman style fonts that we use are modeled after letters that are drawn with a broad nib pen. So I wanted to get relatively good at that, or at least good enough to understand how letters are actually constructed by hand, as opposed to just trying to dive in and, and design a digital typeface without without having that more intimate understanding of what makes a letter. 
uh, why letters have their shape. Why why is this part thick and why is this part thin and why are they spaced this way or that way? Um, and yeah, it, that was it too. Learning learning a lot about the um, interconnectedness of alphabets and how you how you set type and how letters relate to each other on a line and in words. Just kind of getting to know what's you know what's the relationship between a, a lowercase g and a lowercase r you know how how should those two letters be situated next to each other what is the white space in between doing for the rhythm of the overall text and you have to consider that the space between every possible combination of letters um, and so that was a really long process me me learning that reading up on it a lot looking at typefaces by type designers that i admired and yeah i mean once I felt like I had a handle on the typeface and the typeface was really taking shape, that was really when I felt like I was ready to launch the project. That was the actually the biggest factor, I think. It ends up becoming a digital font at some point because it's going to be printed. So was the man, the initial creation, which would have been, I imagine at some point, you sitting down with paper and a pen, was that was that manual component a gratifying aspect of the project? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yes. It, and, and that was how I went about doing it. It's it's amazing how much the images that I scanned in from uh, my manual work uh, changed. It's almost like you might think of the letters that I drew with my hand as the um, sort of like the slab and the digital letters are the sculpture. And, you know, because you're you're designing for a certain type of uh, printing method. So in this case, offset printing. And you're also designing for a certain size at which the type will be viewed. I could draw the type. I could write. I could write with a broad nib pen. I could create those those forms. But it there was a there's a lot of refinement that needs to be done between that and uh, having it ready to be offset printed as a 12 point typeface on a particular type of paper, you know? So as I was developing it as a digital typeface, every single time I would make an adjustment, I would print it and I would print it on the same color paper that um, it would ultimately be printed on. And I would, you know, sometimes I'd, I'd do seven different uh, small changes in a day and I'd print them all off. I remember consciously saying, all right, I got to give myself a day away from these and look at them again tomorrow or the next day to see how I feel about them. And so that was, that was the most, um, I mean, it honestly, I think if, if you saw the, if there was a stack of paper of all of the different iterations of the typeface that I did and all the different print printings and, and all the little notes that I took on these prints that I made, you would think that I was insane. Absolutely. Well, those words ultimately went, those letters went into words and those words, the actual words that are printed in your Bible, uh, were dictated by, uh, you know, the the decision that you had to make at some point about which of the almost endless English language translations of the Bible you would use. You chose a, uh, the American Standard Version, and you, you also modified it a little bit. Talk about why you chose that translation and, and how you modified it. Yes, so this... I'm a little sad that I'm just now starting to talk about this because the translation for me has turned out to be, I think, one of the best things about the whole project, um, or one of the best one of the best things that that came from the whole effort. I did not want to use a post-war translation. I had been reading, um, I'd been reading a lot of Robert Alter. I'm sure if you've listened to anything else by me, you've heard of Robert Alter because I always I always bring up Robert Alter. He just recently completed um, his translation with commentary of the entire Hebrew Bible over a span of, I think, 25 years. But I'd been reading him a lot. I read The Art of Biblical Narrative, which was um, not only enlightening, but life-changing for me. And then I read his his introduction to the five books of Moses. He really deals with the issue of translation. The basic idea is that post-war versions, just to say it very plainly, post-war versions look at the original languages and the translation committee um, takes an explanatory approach and says, all right, 
this Hebrew idiom here would be confusing to an English reader. It would read awkwardly in English. So let's just let's make it seem more like natural English. Let's figure out a way to put it in English that feels natural. Robert Alter's approach would be to preserve the Hebrew idiom. The, you know, this is not a new approach. That was the approach of the King James translators, although they weren't they weren't uh, no, nobody's created a, a perfect translation, including Robert Alter. But and he would be the first to admit that. But the idea was to, as closely as possible, transfer one language into another, word for word. Post-war translations have a tendency to want to clarify things and make things feel natural to an English reader at about an eighth grade reading level, which is fine. That's, that's great. And I think it's good that we have translations like that. I think that we, we've got a full spectrum of translations all the way down to Eugene Peterson's The Message and, um, and even more casual than that. Um, and I'm glad that those are all out there and I think they have merit, but I really wanted to, again, revert to the ancient experience, um, of these texts. And I felt that the ASV, which is a 19th century revision, the, the bulk of the revision was done in the 19th century, even though it was published in 1901, it was a revision of the King James version of the Bible which has a uh, a really beautiful handle on literal translation and also on the cadence and beauty of the English. But what's, I mean, let me, st- let me stop there. Let's, you know, there's, there's endless decisions to make. I recently remodeled my bathroom. I can imagine this would have been even more fraught. You had to choose the the paper. You had to choose the printer. You went with some epically storied German printer. Do you remember the first time you cracked a box and held a finished copy of one of these volumes in your hands? I do. And it was, it was a perfect environment for it. I went to what I believe is the oldest continuously held book fair in the world, the Frankfurt Book Fair. And um, I met there with my publisher, not sorry, not my publisher, the, the printer with, with the manufacturer. They had brought me the first completed specimen in the box. And so I stood there at a random booth at the book fair. There was a little table and I opened it. You know, I kind of slowly opened it. My family was there. I had brought my family with me. So we all kind of got to, my wife and I, and um, at the time, she, my daughter, who was uh, about one, got to all be there for that. And it was such a huge moment. It was such a relief. It was very emotional because of how much, how much time had gone into it and how much, you know, my daughter had just been born amid the making of Bibliotheca and, and the editorial process, which is a very intense time. I know people have to do a lot harder things in their lives than, than that, but I, but I just mean in terms of me spending time on that when I would have, uh, in many ways rather have been, um, soaking in the first year of my daughter's life, you know, um, more than, more than I did. And so it was a very emotional time just to, to, to look at this thing, this, that had been in gestation for so long. Uh, and I remember opening it, taking it out of the box, opening the cover of the New Testament where we had had them put these inserts and the inserts are still there. And they, and I pulled it out and they had used the wrong paper (laughs) for the, for the insert. And I just had this sinking feeling. And I looked at my contact at the, at the manufacturer who was, who was by now, he was a friend, you know? Um, And I was like, ah, this is all so great, but this is the wrong paper for the insert. And he just looked horrified because he knew how how um, how much it meant to me. And then it, they actually hadn't finished the whole print run yet. And so they they finished the remaining copies with the correct paper for that. It's just an insert. It's basically like a little bookmark that you get that comes in, in the New Testament. So but it's actually the same paper. It's just it wasn't the right thickness. Uh, and so and and for me, it was like everything had to be just perfect. And so that was that was like a big disappointment for me but I, I got over it pretty quickly as you sent the books out into the world then these long-awaited much labored over volumes and you started to hear back from people tell me tell me a little bit about the critiques uh that rang truest 
to you or stung you the most? And then also the praise that was the most gratifying for you to hear. I think the one thing that I had expected because I had already heard it, the critique that I had expected was that the translation is too difficult to go, to go back into that a little bit. It's a very literal translation. It's, it's um, a much like David Bentley Hart's new, uh, new translation of the new Testament. It's very literal and it, it sort of, it's, it's a bit of a jolting experience to just be confronted with English that is simply reflecting for the most part the under what's what's being said in the underlying languages um, in a very direct way so that's that's jolting especially when you're used to reading the niv or even the nrsv which some people consider to be a little bit more literal so i expected that criticism people were already really down on the idea of me using the asv as a base text and revising it even though we did have by the way we had scholars uh, review the entire text and put their stamp of approval on it. I expected that criticism and I accepted it because for me, you know, I was very upfront about that. Um, I kind of, you know, we, we brought people along. We told people why we were doing it. We told people the kind of work that was going into it um, in project updates. And, and that was fine. And for me, you know, if that was a deterrent, then, you know, don't, don't get it, you know, get a different Bible. Um, that that was the translation that I strongly believed and still believe was the right one for the project. I like the idea of the reader having to meet the biblical writers halfway, um, where I think post-war translations want to want the reader to have to do as little work as possible. Earlier translations like the ASV and the King James Bible, they uh, very clearly were inviting the reader into antiquity, into another world. That's what I, that's what I wanted this translation to accomplish as well. Um, so that if you stumble upon something that, that seems jarring or doesn't make any sense or seems enigmatic, you're sort of left with that question in the back of your mind and you're encouraged to go, like I said earlier, you're, you're encouraged to go seek the answer for yourself with real resources as opposed to a little marginal note that might give you a, a pat answer. So that was the biggest criticism. But at the same time, the other thing that went wrong <laughs> was our fulfillment provider had, man, they sent a lot of the wrong thing to the wrong people. So pe people who had ordered sets, you know, there's a four volume variation and a five volume variation. There's the New Testament. You could get the New Testament only. You could get one with or without a slipcase. And man, they sent out hundreds and hundreds of the wrong thing. And to this day, we don't even know how many of the wrong thing they sent out because we, we know a lot of people got full sets that had only ordered the New Testament. And we don't know how many of those people actually fessed up to it. You know, it, it was just it was it was a crazy time when we delivered. And that was right in the holiday season. The The biggest thing that I was relieved to see as a pos as positive feedback was people overwhelmingly who were sharing it on social media, who were writing on our Kickstarter page. Um, overwhelmingly, the sentiment was Bibliotheca came today worth the wait. And that was such a huge relief to hear people say worth the wait, because we made people wait two years longer than we when we when we first launched the campaign and thought it was going to be a smaller thing, we thought we could get it done in six months or so. And we made people wait two years longer than that. And so, you know, I think a lot of people had gotten really frustrated at the wait by that time. And I think even many of those people who who were really infuriated by the wait got it and then understood why it, why it took so long and how much better it was because we took our time. As you look back on this season of your life, how do you look back on it? How does it exist in your memory? Was it a, a sweet season? Do you look back on it with fondness? Was it exhausting? Yeah, I think there, there's a, there's a, when we finished the product, when it was, when it had finished uh, being manufactured and we were getting ready to ship it, we made a video as an update for our Kickstarter backers and the same guys who made the original video produced this video. And 
and they put together a final cut. You know, we filmed it, and I got I got kind of emotional when they were asking me questions, and <laughs> so I like I teared up a little bit. Um, and I assumed that they would take that out and use it and use a different cut. But when they showed me the final cut, they left that emotion in. And I was like, well, I don't really know if I want you guys to show that. And they're like, dude, this was hard for you. <laughs> and it's OK for people to see that. And I think it was it was one of the hardest things I've ever done. Mostly because, again, like I said earlier, I know people have to deal with much harder things, but um, it was mostly just because my daughter was born while we were making it. And I was so just buried in it and so stressed out by it that even when I was present physically with my family, I, I wasn't emotionally available or mentally available. And so that was, that was rough. That was really hard. That's not what I thought my first year of parenthood would be like at all. So yeah, in some ways I, I resented the project for that, but to this day, I'm still immensely and overwhelmingly grateful for it. Um, because it has, it's allowed me to provide for my family. It's allowed me to pursue, uh, things that I'm actually passionate about rather than, you know, whatever else I would be doing. And so I, I'm, I'm very grateful for that and, and feel very fortunate for the, you know, having the platform of Kickstarter, you know, launching it at the time I did where for whatever reason, it, it really struck a chord with people for finding the help that I did. Um, you know, your friend, Devin, uh, who's a mutual friend of both of ours. Um, he was my rock. That guy, if the, if he was not there helping me, the project would not have gotten done. The managing editor, Will Palmer, Josh Wilbur was another guy from Santa Cruz. Um, uh, basically, the operations manager. He just took care of everything. He made sure everything was moving. Um, without those guys, without that team, uh, it would not have happened. And I find myself very grateful for just um, their help and my ability to work with them and see their work ethic and learn from them. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it was it's a it was a huge learning experience for me. Um, continues to be probably most of my day-to-day -day work. Bibliotheca is is still a huge project for us and uh, we're still selling copies of it. And, um, you know, every holiday season we get a huge influx of orders and have to figure out how to fulfill them on time. And it's, you know, um, so it's a mixed bag. It's a mixed bag. I love it. You know, I feel I'm so grateful and I feel very fortunate uh, and blessed by it and at the and on the other side it it you know there there were there were some negative there were some darker sides to getting it made and it's it's also a lot bigger than i thought it was going to be so that instead of being something that i kind of did on the side and moved on from like i said it's still my primary day-to-day -day focus so this now this is six years later you know that uh, I'm still working on this thing that was supposed to be kind of a, a small side project and maybe have 500 copies out there and probably never hear from anybody about it again. Well, I appreciate your time so much. In closing, I just want to ask you one final question. How, if at all, did doing this project change your relationship with the Bible? <sighs> what a great question. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because as I said earlier, the, this idea came out of a desire of my own to have a Bible like this. But now I think because it's, I spent so much time in it, you know, typesetting every page, reviewing every editorial change. I don't honestly know if I'll ever read my way through Bibliotheca. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think I can look at it that long. <laughs> um, but in terms of how it has affected my relationship with the Bible itself, I so enjoyed the process of learning th 
through the editorial process, through working with the scholars and copy editors about all the weird quirks and strange occurrences and different ways of translating that you find uh, throughout the biblical corpus that I wasn't I wasn't privy to before uh, or things that I hadn't noticed in my readings of the Bible in the past. Um, it was such a pleasure to encounter the Bible in a, in a more intimate, slow way like that. And that has forever changed the way that I read the Bible. I think now I would rather read the Bible um, with the original languages open to me, with lexicons open to me um, than in any, any other way. Um, so yeah, ironically, my original intent was to make this thing for myself, for my own experience, but I don't, you know, my preferred way of experiencing the Bible now, I, you know, I, I like reading Robert Alter's translations because of the um, extensive commentaries, other translations that are similar to his, or just opening up uh, an app where I can see the original languages and, and see commentators' notes different commentators notes and see uh, and open up lexicons to see the sort of the dimensions of the of the underlying languages. So, yeah, I mean, it's brought me closer to the Bible on a more spiritual level. It's a more difficult one to answer. I think I'm still working through that <laughs> a little bit. But um, my love and admiration for scripture has changed, but not has not been reduced. Thank you so much for your time, Adam. Thank you, Ben. I, thanks so much for thinking to, to uh, invite me on. I really appreciate it. As Adam makes clear, Bibliotheca is still very much live. You can still order copies of all the various volumes through their website. So head over, poke around if you're interested. Thanks as always for listening. We'll talk to you next week.